Welcome to episode one of the Midfield Politics Podcast. My name is Luke James and I'm joined in the commentary position by Zach Green. The MP pod is, at least we hope, just the start of our plans for this project. As we move through the summer, Zach and I hope to set up a politics blog dedicated to analysing and forecasting British and American politics. Of course, with one eye on the upcoming presidential elections later this year. We have lots of cool plans for the blog, including state-by-state election predictions and previews, so hopefully that is something you're looking forward to seeing. Before we get into the podcast, I think it's important to talk about the protests that have spread around the world following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Although we won't be talking about the Black Lives Matter protests in this episode, there will be a focus of our future endeavours. For me personally, I just wanted to say that I'm committed to learning more and trying to be a good ally to the movement. On that, I promise that we will always try our best. Coming up on today's show, we're going to be discussing the government's coronavirus response, the Dominic Cummings scandal that truly cut through to the public, and Sakir Starmer's surge as the leader of the Labour Party. However, it's now time to introduce my co-host and good friend, Zach Green. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you, Luke. I'm glad that we've got Series 1 underway after that pilot back in December. Uh, How are you? I'm doing well. The weather in the upcoming City of Culture, Coventry, is looking slightly more rosy than when we first started to try to record the podcast. So that is very, very nice indeed. As I said, coming up on today's show, we're going to be talking about what the government has been doing with regards to the coronavirus, what the Prime Minister, Mr Dominic Cummings, has been doing with regards to his trips to Durham, and of course, Labour under Sakir Starmer. So, Zach, I was hoping that you'd like to get the ball rolling on this one. What is the government doing kind of amid a global pandemic? So, Boris Johnson, he has always said that he's been guided by the science. And this is a very important phrase that has basically been hammered home all from the start. So on March 21st, Boris Johnson announced a complete lockdown of the country under this mantra of stay at home, save lives and save the NHS, or protect the NHS. As time has gone on from March 21st, lockdown has become increasingly understrained, both from economic considerations with spiralling unemployment, and to remedy that, we saw the Chancellor Rishi Sunak introduce this iconic furlough scheme. It's never been done before. It's an ambitious experiment, I'd say, in giving, basically paying, paying the workers, the state is paying the workers, and we've seen incremental steps in lifting this complete blanket lockdown across the country. But it's here, in my opinion, that it's starting to see the cracks in the policy overall. And back in March, when lockdown was announced, we saw the government's approval ratings absolutely spiral into the 70s, into the 80s, even in some polls. So as the lockdown has gone on, that has been really a downward spiral into the negatives. So Luke, I just wanted to really ask you, um, do you think lockdown's over? Well, it's interesting. Um, In a way, I don't think lockdown ever truly started, if I'm being totally honest. If you look, compared to say France, Italy or Spain, there's been kind of a world apart in terms of the conditions that have been placed on people. And again, I think discursively, the government let the cat out of the bag when they changed the slogan "Home Save Lives" to um, 
the fact I can't remember the wording of stay alert the fact that I struggle to remember the wording of the new slogan kind of says it all I think a little bit um in yeah. terms of the lockdown and as you say you kind of look at the approval rating of Boris Johnson versus the new leader of the opposition Sakia Starmer and you can kind of see where the issues lie so I'm just looking at something on the election maps twitter account where it says the kind of the proportion of voters who say that the best prime minister would be Boris Johnson or Keir Starmer. Boris Johnson started kind of on 46, 47% in April, and now he's down to 41%, whereas Keir Starmer started kind of around 23%, and now he's up to 28%. It's not looking particularly good for the government. And I think just walking around where I live, you're starting to see more and more people. And of course, um, on the first of this month, they opened slightly bizarrely car showrooms and open open air yeah. markets. Um, so yeah, I, I think the lockdown is over insofar as it never particularly started that strongly in the first place. Mm. I think to add, add on to that, I think I've got a different spin on this. I think social lockdown never started because I still went on my walks after obviously I was infected when I was when it was all over, and you could see people being quite liberal with their interpretation of the rules anyway. But the economic lockdown is still going on, which is the sore point in all of this. Which is the I start to think we're not being guided by the science; we're now being dictated by the economy. That certain businesses either have to open in the next couple of weeks, or that's it. A lot of businesses will go under. And you were saying about car showrooms, I think that was quite bizarre, because you'd think car showrooms, I wouldn't say big business, but they're quite sizable businesses, whereas you've got barbers, for example. If you can implement social distancing in barbers, you'd surely justify them opening as well as garden centres, etc. So I think as lockdown's gone on, the, the interpretation of what lockdown is has completely gone out the window. I think that the stay at home, save lives worked too well. I think that's interesting. I think if you look back right to the start and kind of to the era, and it feels like years ago when Boris Johnson had, I'm not sure if it was a daily briefing or previous to the daily briefings, when Boris Johnson, the prime minister said, I went to a hospital and I shook the hands of everyone there. There's nothing to worry about kind of thing. Uh, mm. Typically try to, bury that quote and backtracked on that policy entirely um let's say fair it was quite relaxed then you had this really kind of strict stay at home save lives narrative and, and now as you go further mm. along the track and we've moved past the moment in time where we were building additional hospitals hospitals um reducing the tube service all these kind of things people are starting to relax and you can kind of see that and i think yeah lockdown is starting to ease and again you talk about social lockdown versus economic lockdown i think that's interesting as well because um and we're going to talk in a moment i would guess but the coronavirus job retention scheme um furlough for all intents and purposes closer into the autumn employers to pay into the system um and this is just my opinion but from my perspective if you and again the rights are not but if employers have to start paying say 20% of employees wages 
if they're still not able to return to work in October, there is no point in the job retention scheme because oh, I, I agree. Because you'll just get a situation, and kind of my dad's business is a prime example of this: is if people can't go back to work by October, they're never going to be able to go back. <laughs> to, to be kind of yeah. blunt about the situation, I think the government knows that, and again, I think reducing the furlough scheme gradually is their way of not looking like the quote-unquote nasty party. Um, so that's interesting. Mm, I was just about to add on to that. With my dad's business, they've, uh, they've been talking about VAT holidays. And one thing that Rishi Sunak allegedly, according to the Telegraph, I think it was about a week ago, was considering that he'd also give national insurance holidays. And I think there are businesses out there that have been struggling before the virus. And with this added on, the job retention scheme taking most of the money that they would be paying out into their hand and giving it to the employees, it gives that short relief. But like you say, I think if it, when it comes down to it, if it comes to October and employers have to pay 20 to 40%, they won't give it. I just don't feel like they would do it because it, it would be impractical. If they've not got any money coming in, there would be no point in taking money out. And in terms of, for example, you talk about workers, that will be the next issue that basically if you can't pay the workers, they'll leave or they'll be made redundant. But who's actually going to be filling those jobs in? Because essentially they're going to be quite low paying jobs if the employee, if the employer can't pay into the system and it'd only be on the government's 40 to 60 percent so it's a real issue i think that the government has not really looked at they've just said it's part of this part of the johnson government since december they'll be saying what saying the policy but not actually telling us what the policy is and how they actually expect the policy to develop over time but i do feel like um just to put it on the record that the idea that people are addicted to the scheme I think would be a bit of a, a misjudgment on the government's part yeah I agree I actually um about that so the question then or was that effect have British government used the welfare state to attack rather than protect the vulnerable um and I think that quote I think it was attributed to Dominic Cummings but also Matt Hancock said something similar about needing to wean people off of furlough was i think that was a mistake that they made and i think that kind of coincided with the falling approval rates for the government because i mean no one wants to be on furlough <laughs> like <laughs> no, no, no one wants to be on work um and it was just kind of the classic look at these scroungers while we've got everyone out here working mm. It's kind of the, and, um, it's like the dependency culture that they, they've attacked for years, like even under Thatcher, they've been attacking this idea of a, a dependency culture. And they, you know, obviously, rightly or wrongly, under the Blair years, welfare did go up. And then under Cameron, Cameron onwards, they've tried to, inversely commas, wean people off the welfare system. But if there's no system there to, as a safety net anyway, people can have no choice but to depend on these schemes. But you're right, totally on the, I think it was just such a, it's a classic thing to say. But it's a classic thing to think. With the government, they seem to be saying, coming out with really uh, risque, risque comments. 
especially with Matt Hancock. I mean, he's he's dropped more than Kepa Ariza Balaga, but it, it just seems to me that the government's response was very good-natured at the start of this. They were doing the right things, even if it was a bit too late, which I think we'll go into a bit later about whether or not we locked down earlier enough, whether we should have locked down at all. It's been good-natured what they're trying to do, but as it's been going on, there's the financial realities hitting that the furlough scheme is costing twenty billion. They are now with a problem that we can't keep borrowing the money because they've hammered previous governments for too much borrowing, too much debt, too much deficit. Now they're in that position; they don't really know what to do. And I think the next few months will be quite fragile in that in that sense. Yeah, I agree. Um, a quote that. I kind of, as I said, the essay I was writing, and I think it would be interesting kind of in the post-lockdown era. Um, and it's interesting as well, because the coronavirus, obviously, in the 2019 general election, the government kind of rose, not rose to power, they, they won the election again, basically based off the idea that the era of austerity was was over. That was kind of the message that they were trying to get across. Um, and obviously, if we come back to 2012, so this is from George Osborne at the 2012 Conservative. He said, where is the fairness for the shift worker leaving home in the dark hours of the early morning who looks up at the closed blinds of their next door neighbours sleeping? Um, it's an interesting quote, and it's one that I put on this essay, as I say. Um, but I think what will be really, really intriguing is how the Conservative navigate the post of people are going to be made redundant. Lots of people are going to lose their jobs. And they'll have we've to... Seen that the... I was saying we were, uh, we've seen the welfare system, for example, the universal credit system is not exactly perfect. It's not exactly seamless. Uh, just to add that in. Definitely. Um, so yeah, I think it'll be interesting kind of how the government approached this, because if if the economic response to the pandemic is the worst case scenario and lots of people do end up out of work. It will be interesting to see how the government approach that narrative because they'll have to balance they'll have to balance the books and they'll have to also at the same time recognise that the people who are aren't out of work for any fault of their own. Um, and the quote that Boris Johnson mm. keeps kind of reeling out, particularly when he's asked questions by the media, is um we don't want to penalise people who are doing the right thing. Um, so obviously in the post-coronavirus British economy, whatever that looks like, it'll be interesting to see how those people are kind of treated. Um, looking at, and in my notes, I've, I've kind of put together three main policies that the government have implemented. So they had the coronavirus job retention scheme, which we've spoken about, the self-employment grant scheme, which is basically furlough for self-employed people, and the bounce back the provision for the self-employed. And uh, just to add on, we, we talk about all these schemes and all these small businesses. The Conservatives definitely have to change their narrative because you're looking at the seats that they won at the last general election. The reason they got such a substantial majority is because they got this, inverted commas, the red wall. They demolished the red wall. At the start, this was a, what we call a, the borrow Brexit vote. Now it sounds these people, for example, in Bolsover, in Blythe Valley, 
in Dudley. These people are going to be the most worse off when this crisis begins to really engulf the economy. And I don't think the Conservatives can do what they've done 10 years ago and unleash another wave of austerity and cutting public spending in some sectors. Because this time around, if they lose these voters, they lose Bolsover again, they lose all of these seats that have gained at the election, they'll be out of power within, in a blink of an eye. So it's going to be interesting. Do they punish big businesses, for example? Do they give bailouts to big businesses? Or do they continue with this idea that, if, for example, when you were saying Johnson doesn't want to penalise people doing the right thing, what does Johnson probably think on people doing the wrong thing, for example? Uh, I think it's EasyJet that's still uh, giving out dividends to their shareholder, uh, shareholders. Mm. And when you square the economic imperative, big businesses can't fail, otherwise large swathes of the economy goes under. Or do they say, look, businesses have most of the money. It's time to redistribute that most of that money to smaller businesses, to unemployed, to those who are on low pay. So it's interesting when we're talking about those three schemes about how they're going to resonate in the future. Yeah, definitely. And it's worth remembering with kind of the coronavirus and how it's impacted the British economy or wide reaching that retailers, your kind of people working in manufacturing in these kind of industries like Tottenham 75 from the Bank of England lockdown, which is also just a little bit kind of crazy. And you look at it and you think, and I agree with what you said earlier, I think the government at the start of the lockdown didn't do too bad, did quite a good job at the start of the lockdown. I think they were sluggish, um, they were definitely slow, but I think they tried their best. And at the start, I had the argument, well, no one expected a global pandemic to hit us. There's only so much we can do. We are human. I, at the start, I got that um, for a couple of weeks. But of course, there are issues with all of the schemes we've mentioned. So for instance, with the furlough scheme, lots of people left their previous jobs just before the cutoff date. Um, so then they went to their new job at the start and made them redundant go back to their previous employers and ask to be furloughed by the previous employer. But of course, the way that furlough works is that your employer pays you and then they are refunded by the government. Mm. Would be willing to pay you 80% of your wages if you previously attended your resignation and got a new job. Is Again, that's not nice, but it's the financial reality that businesses just aren't typically going to be willing to do that. So you have lots of people very, very vocal on Twitter, talking about like issues with people who are new starters. Um, with exactly, I was about to say, new starters for the self-employed have been really hit hard by this. Yeah, that's that, that's the same thing as well. And I think with all self-employed people, um, the government was probably too slow to start their system. I think one one of the most embarrassing episodes um, of lockdown. And I can't remember which minister it was. For a reason, I want to say Alok Sharma, but I could be wrong. Um, at the daily briefing, or maybe it was Grant I'm not too sure. Basically, he told the press about the big shipment of um, personal protective equipment, PPE, coming in from Turkey. Um, and then it was delayed 
for numerous days and it transpired that the Turkish government didn't know anything about this and then the equipment finally arrived in the UK and it was all not of a sufficient standard to use in the NHS. It's things like that that have kind of undermined the government's um, mm. kind of prestige on this issue. And of course, we'll talk about Dominic Cummings next, um, kind of in the next segment. Yeah. But it's things like that that have started to undermine the government's position, make them look a little bit silly. Um, and yeah. It's interesting. Uh, there was a poll commissioned by, I think it was the Times last week, that the, the Tory image from last month has absolutely gone down the toilet. They're now scoring 40% on incompetent, 40% on out of touch. I think they're in the 30% compared to probably, I think it was about 17 off the top of my head, in terms of the question was, they're acting in our interest than the party's interest. And it's all of that kind of thing as the lockdown's gone on. The kind of the nasty party image they've done their best to extinguish it but in doing so it's risen probably even worse than it has been in previous years which is kind of the ironically the greek tragedy of boris johnson himself the heineken tory he's you know he's the tory for everyone and as the the, the pandemic's gone on it's kind of been exposed inverted commas that they're not grappling with an unprecedented situation and they can use that but I think as public polling has gone on I think we'll talk about it with Dominic Cummings the issue of this word unprecedented has kind of lost its lost its gloss as time's gone on because the crisis has basically set in well yeah as well and as much as it is an unprecedented event they had they had weeks worth of warnings they could have looked at Italy and gone ah this might be a bit of a problem. We have lots of people travelling into the UK from all over the world, particularly into London Airport, Heathrow, Heathrow Stansted, etc. Um, which, again... And that, yeah, and that's another policy that I think they've actually cocked up with this, this row over quarantine, about quarantining people that are coming into the country. Why was this not done? I, I said that this idea was, it was a 14-day policy, but 14 weeks too late. It's these kind of missteps the government has done when they've had ample warning, like you said, that have really undermined them as as time's gone on. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, For people kind of outside of the loop on what the government are proposing with quarantine, what they're saying is that new arrivals in the UK after a certain date are going to have to spend 14 days in quarantine to make sure that they don't raise the R-level kind of in the UK and the justification for not already having this system in place is basically because the rate of infection in the UK is at such a level where people from outside of the UK aren't going to come in and increase the number of infections because they're already high in the first place, which there's an element of logic to that. Um, And if they're being led by the science, they're being led by the science. And I I say that tongue in cheek. Um, but my issue, my issue is, and again, as I say, I'm a, I'm a politics student. I, I follow politics. I like politics. It's just in terms of such an, it would have been such an easy win for the government if they turned around and said, yeah, everyone who arrives in the UK is going to have to do a 14 day quarantine. We're going to lock you down. If you come out of your lockdown, then we're going to fine you do whatever it would be an easy win for the government because it would be something that wouldn't hurt Mm. the british economy 
it would kind of deter people from coming into the country, which again would please a very small portion of the far right wing of the British electorate. Um, it would have just made sense to to implement that policy, and I, I yeah. don't really understand why they're still dragging their feet on it. It, it is kind of the, the whole thing is leadership, isn't it? Yeah, they're saying they're being led by the science, but when it comes to every decision that's being made in this lockdown is political. And I think Johnson, Raab, Patel, etc., they're avoiding that kind of truism that you can't make certain decisions when your own scientists are saying, I don't really think you should do that. For example, I think it was Chris Whitty who told Boris Johnson, you can't downgrade the, because the government now have this system of levels one to five of, um, and Boris Johnson wanted to lift it from four to three. And Chris Whitty vetoed that. He said, you can't put it down to three. Yet, if they're being led by the science, they wouldn't be so enthusiastic about it. I, I, I think it is all, it's all kind of, it just smacks of a lack of leadership when it matters. The Conservatives have a very strong leader in Johnson, I think, but when it actually matters, you've seen him kind of go missing and the gap, the lack of, complete lack of talent in the Tory party, other than Johnson for leadership, has really shown, I think. On that point, and I, th- I think this will come up later in the podcast as well, um, do you think Boris Johnson's a good leader? It depends on what he's leading. I think the whole Brexit thing, we call it the Brexit thing because it's inverted commas has been done. We are leading the European Union, very firm leadership. And I really, for someone who voted Labour at the last election, one thing I would commend Johnson for is he's nipped that issue in the bud. We are out. We are going to go out. That was good leadership. You know, that was kind of very firm. Very, that was fine. But you're looking at this virus response. Nothing's nothing's happening. The ministers are ministers are kind of going beyond their brief. For example, Matt Hancock, Grant Sharps yesterday saying that we have to wear pu- uh, face masks on public transport, otherwise we get fined. And now there's a bit of an issue over whether or not that's true. Matt Hancock last week saying that fines into parents trying to find childcare will be reviewed and then it turns out the Treasury said no. I think Johnson can't really get a grip on his ministers. And you've got the new scandal. I think we're about to talk about another scandal in a minute of Robert Jenrick, the housing minister, apparently giving a one billion pound contract to a private uh I think it's a private firm or a private individual who coincidentally was at a Tory dinner next to Jenrick. And it's this kind of he started off as a great leader. He united the Tory party. They got a substantial landslide. The discipline of the party is great. And then it's come to this and things that have emanated from this that he's completely gone absent on. And yes, he's got a majority of 80, but as we've already seen with Dominic Cummings, I think we're about to talk about him, that majority of 80 disappears quite quickly in terms of those who are genuinely supporting the government. I think that's interesting. I have a slightly different, perhaps, um, reading of the Prime Minister's leadership style. I think Boris Johnson is really, really good. A very convincing leader. 
when he is using the kind of divide and conquer playbook. So for instance, when he'd just become prime minister last year and he was trying to push the withdrawal agreement through parliament and he expelled um, Winston Churchill's grandson and Philip Hammond and all sorts of people from across the party. And I think, I think that made, I think that gave kind of a sort a false sense of security in the sense that Boris Johnson looks good as a leader when he is authoritative and on top of things and saying, this is right, this is wrong. Basically, I think he likes playing the role of kind of truth God. So he likes saying, okay, you're my person or you're not my person. If you're not my person, kind of get out essentially. And I think yeah. at that point he looked strong. And as much as I disagreed with proroguing parliament and all of that absolute nonsense that we spoke about in the last podcast in, in the, in the pilot episode, um, I disagree with that profoundly, but he did look like a strong leader. And as this has gone on, and I think the Dominic Cummings thing has totally undermined him as leader, he just looks a little bit kind of out there. And actually, this was a quote that I wanted to put to you. So the Daily, um, or not the Daily, the Telegraph, rather, um, Ah. said on Tuesday this week, I believe it was, that Boris Johnson was planning to take control of the government's response to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, oh yeah. So the questions I'll I'll put to you, Zach, and I'll, I'll I'll do this within the context of the Dominic Cummings Durham extravaganza. Is who, in your opinion, has been leading the government's response to the coronavirus? I think it's been the same person who was leading the government's messaging at the general election. I think it's the same person who brilliantly won the 2016 referendum. I do think that Dominic Cummings, A, has led the response in terms of messaging, because we know that Dominic Cummings loves three-word slogans, get Brexit done, take back control, stay at home. I think Johnson's, not puppetry, I wouldn't say that, I don't think Johnson's a puppet, but in terms of navigating Boris Johnson, in terms of the press, I think Dominic Cummings has led the response. I think he and his inverted commas, he, he, on his own blog, his weirdos at number 10 have really been the machinery behind government response and government messaging during the coronavirus. I think they've been in control. And the beautiful irony, I think, is that if Johnson's taking back control, what's he taking back control of? His government or the virus response? I think that uh, yeah, I I agree. I, I don't understand. Um, of course, you would have you would have got throughout the course of this podcast. That I'm not I'm not a Conservative Party voter or supporter. Um, but I I don't understand the logic in people supporting. I I, I get why people support Boris Johnson. He's charismatic, but I don't understand recently how people have been saying, yeah, great leadership on the coronavirus and then turning around and him saying, oh, well, I've not been leading the response. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, and I think it... I think it's a clang. Yeah, it's it? just a bit weird. And I, I don't understand why they leak that to the press because clearly if, if the Telegraph are reporting that Boris Johnson is going to be taking control of the government, it's because someone in Downing Street has told them that Boris Johnson is going to take control of the government. It's just a bit odd. I don't understand... Um, And of course, this cuts to the next issue. So in the midst of the government rebranding its coronavirus slogan, Prime Minister Dominic Cummings was embroiled in a scandal of quite epic proportions. Last month, the Daily Mirror 
broke the story that Cummings' senior aide to Boris Johnson had broken lockdown rules by driving to Durham. After days of turmoil, Cummings was forced, and again, quite spectacularly, into hosting a press conference in the Downing Street Rose Garden. Cummings, the account that he gave was quite spectacular. So Cummings claimed to have left Downing Street to attend to his wife, Mary Wakefield, after she fell ill at the London home. After she started to feel better later that day, Cummings then returned to work in Downing Street. The next day, the Cummings family left London to head north to stay at a cottage, at a cottage rather on the Cummings kind of family estate. Um, and then after completing a period in isolation, Dominic Cummings then drove his family in the car to Barnard Castle, which he claims was to test his <laughs> eyesight. Um, of course, there were more kind of nuances and hooks in the story. Of course, they had to take their son to hospital at one point. Um, but he had to be two meters away. Yes, from but the, the kind of what I've done there is I've outlined kind of the main talking points and the main issues. Um, there's so much to break down here, Zach. What do you make of my favorite name for a political scandal ever, Cumgate? <laughs> um, it's about precedent, isn't it? Personally, at the start, before Cummings' rather farcical press conference, I didn't think he should lose his job. I think it was easily back, it could be easily batted away. But we know Dominic Cummings, we know Boris Johnson. These people are not do not have contrition. So people expected Dominic Cummings to come out and apologise and say, "Oh, I'm really regretful. I, I now know, you know, I've tendered my resignation. It's not been accepted." That could have all kind of mitigated it, but I think the whole thing when he explained why he went was quite ludicrous. It it, it defies belief that he went to Barnard Castle for an eye test, he drove 253 miles and back to uh, get childcare because they were all ill. And it just kind of, again, we spoke about the government trying to get rid of this nasty party image, which they did try to, which they did succeed momentarily. But you've got to square this with the, what the government has been saying, stay at home. You know, don't see your ill relatives that might be dying. You know, don't be with them in their last moments. Don't, you know, try and find people to care for your struggling children. Stay at home. Yet Dominic Cummins is wheeling about the country on a cross-country tour. It's kind of... It has cut through, and it's quite evident that people are angry. And it kind of... You, you now think he has to go, because this is genuinely... I think it's a, it's a hypocrisy thing, rather than it being bonafide bad if you know what yeah I mean. that's that's the issue it is the hypocrisy of it and what i find quite interesting as well you say it's cut through um you know a political issue is cut through to the general public when the front page of the daily star has a cut out mask of dominic cummings <laughs> and, and kind of all sorts like that um so that's interesting what i would say as well is <sighs> from the outset as as outraged as I was, I'm I'm less annoyed with Dominic Cummings as I am with the government ministers mm. who are so spineless that they spent the whole of their weekend defending oh. Dominic Cummings only for them to, to a second story break and kind of disprove everything that it said. 
Um, and that's the thing. Over the weekend, it was the dishonesty of it. So initially, no, Dominic Cummings hadn't driven to Durham. Then it was, oh, he did, but he stayed in a separate room for childcare purposes. And then it was, oh, no, Dominic Cummings looked after his child the whole way through the story. Um, and then obviously you had Mary Wakefield writing an article in The Spectator about their lockdown experience in London, which, of course, they weren't in London when they had the coronavirus. Um, and again, then you talk about Dominic Cummings's blog when he said that last year he had written about the danger of a global pandemic and of kind of <coughs> SARS-like illnesses and, of course, the coronavirus. That blog had mm. been edited the day that he went back to work. So it's like the government knew at some point that this story was bound to break um, and they laid the foundations or should I say Dominic Cummings laid the foundation for the defence of this and they reverse engineered it. But I just can't, I can't believe how much of a hold you must have on over someone. And again, you've got to remember these people have aspired to be politicians for much of their life. They've gone to all of the best schools. They're like very, very driven people. And again, we're not, I'm not excusing their privilege of most of these politicians I, I get that completely but like they've they've clearly worked hard they've clearly risen up the food chain um and again if you look at someone like Rishi Sunak who until this year was very much outside of the mainstream focus has risen to the post of chancellor previously worked as a banker mm. um has clearly achieved a lot even someone like like Rishi Sunak then turns around and and throws his support behind Dominic Cummings it's almost as if the whole of the government owes coming something and it's like the whole of the government will fall to pieces if yeah. Dominic Cummings was to leave. But the thing is, and the narrative around Cummings is quite simple, it is that he is the mastermind of the operation and that he is the de facto prime minister. That's why I made a joke of it earlier. But the, the, the issue that I take with this is if Dominic Cummings is so integral to the government, why are they so bothered about keeping it if, if the government's response has been pretty kind of naff yeah and as well what i find quite sickening as a law student anyway was the attorney general making this a political issue when it really was a question of whether or not he broke the regulations and she was saying oh absolutely and now you've got a row between her and lord falconer the shadow attorney general it's kind of it's an it's arrogance as well. Like we know that Dominic Curran, Cummings is arrogant. We don't expect anything less of him, to be quite honest. But the government ministers, like you're saying, have not have been so spineless yet so arrogant. You've got Matt Hancock, Rishi Sunak as well. I think Michael Go saying, "Well, he done what any parent would do." I think that's just a sickening comment to hear, isn't it? If you're a parent who's abided by the rules, you know you've not been able, for example, say. Luckily, when I was when I was struck down with the virus, I was at home with my mum. But say, for example, I was back at university, really struggling, really struggling every day. But my mum couldn't drive up to Canterbury. You know, I wouldn't think that any no parent would do that if they're being told to stay at home. They wouldn't drive all the way up to Canterbury or drive all the way up to Durham. Yet it's kind of it is a one rule for Dominic Cummings because he's so special to the government. And one rule for everyone else. I think that's what's really cheesed people off about this whole saga. It's not even whether or not he gets his, gets to keep his job. It's the fact that it seems to be okay for him to not stay at home, but everyone else has to. 
I would like to put a question to you. So it's been quite the week or fortnight or however long it's been since since the press conference for the Rose Gardens of the world. Um, of course, we had Dominic Cummings and um, President Trump giving addresses in the Rose Garden recently. What did you make of the press conference itself? Mm-hmm. Well, Cummings is one. Um, you could tell that it was very... It, Cummings didn't write that statement. It was very legally charged. You know, I may have done this. I, I, I can't seem to recollect. I did discuss this, but it, it, it's very much giving all these caveats. It was probably an attempt by the government, I think, to make the issue go away by confusing everyone to the point of, oh, what's the point of covering this anymore? We don't know what really what happened, but it kind of backfired. I think the questioning from some journalists, I want to just give props to Beth Rigby and Gary Gibbon, especially. They absolutely slaughtered Cummings' uh, account. And it, you could tell it was not really a good account as he was really confused when they were saying, well, hang on a minute you really surely can't have put your kids in the same car as if you didn't think you could see. I, I thought the, the press conference in itself was just, it was farcical, but it was also kind of emblematic of who really, who governs, uh, who governs the government and it yeah. seems to be coming. Um, my favourite thing about this whole affair was when everyone in the cabinet was kind of throwing themselves in the firing line to defend Dominic Cummings. And then my, my favourite moment of of the era um, that we're in was when Michael Gove, who's Chancellor for the Duchy of Lancaster, whatever that that means in real life, I'm not actually too sure. Um, he went on LBC to talk to Nick Ferrari on the breakfast show, and the question that Ferrari asked was very simple. It was was basically, would you drive for thirty miles each way or thirty minutes each way to test your eyesight with your wife and children in the car? Um, and then Michael Gove laughed a little bit and then he said, well, I have on occasion taken my wife with me to make sure that I could drive. But he kind of stopped himself halfway through because, and the, the, again, this is only my interpretation yeah. of this, uh, interpretation of this. I, I'm not accusing the um, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster of actually doing these things. It looked like he was trying to stop himself from incriminating himself about something that he might have previously done, if you're catching my drift. Just like the wry smile when then Nick Ferrari says, I, yeah. I don't know how you're going to get out of this one, but it will be fun. And then Michael Gove then proceeds to basically say that he's not the authority on driving and things like this. And it was just, even Michael Gove, someone who, of course, has a long, long history of thinking that he's Frank Underwood. Um, I think that's the best way to put it. Of, of yeah. course, he... It rhymes with... Yeah, and of course he cut down Boris Johnson's first leadership beard, um, was was integral to vote leave, all these kinds of things. I, th- I, th- I think as a politician, Michael Gove is really effective. And whether you agree or not with his positions, I think Michael Gove is quite an interesting position. But in that situation, someone who stood in front of a bus that promised to give the NHS 350 million a week, someone who stood in front of a poster saying that the whole of the Turkish population is bound to arrive in the UK imminently during the referendum um, even halfway through that lie even he stopped himself and said no this is a bit silly and I think that kind of sums up this discussion I think yeah. it's 
very much emblematic of a period in, I'd like to say British politics, but it's clearly much more widespread than that. A cl- just a period in public life where the truth just isn't that important anymore. Um, and reality is something that politicians can play with to their own effect. So I think it'll be really interesting as we move forward, how Labour kind of respond to this, because throughout the Dominic Cummings thing, the front bench stayed really quiet. Um, and I think that worked well for them. I don't think the meeting between um, the SNP, Liberal Democrats, Plaid, Green Party, everyone else apart from the Tories and the DUP, basically, looked, looked great because it looked a little bit kind of mm. like the knife were out. Yeah. Coalition um, so of chaos. I, I think it kind of made sense for Labour to sit uh, back on that. Um, have you got anything else to say on Dominic Cummings? Um, we were talking about obviously Johnson being a leader and being strong in some respects. Obviously, this has exposed some weaknesses in his leadership. Yet, you look at Starmer's leadership, we're going to talk about this, I think, in a minute. For example, Starmer didn't have to call for Cummings to go because... I think a few of his own MPs were breaking the rules, but there was one person in the front bench, Rosie Duffield, MP for Canterbury. Uh, can't remember off the top of my head her position in the shadow cabinet, but when it was revealed that she broke lockdown guidelines, she offered her resignation, she apologised, and she acknowledged she breached the regulations. You compare that to Cummings and this whole farce that's really just engulf the media for about a week. You can contrast the two and you think, what if Cummings done what Duffield done? Would this would we be talking about it in this manner? Would we be saying, well, this shows that Johnson's a weak leader, the polls are dipping. It kind of just makes you think, why didn't Cummings take that approach which could have preserved the government's credibility and electability in the Yeah, vote? I think the final thing that I'll say on this and I can't remember where I saw this, but there was a quote, and I, I think it was in the Financial Times, that basically said that Dominic Cummings wouldn't resign and he didn't particularly care how bad the Conservatives' um, approval ratings were because he's not a Tory and he doesn't rate most of the Cabinet or any of the Cabinet. Um, so when mm. when a senior advisor is on the record of, of saying that, that Conservative MPs don't care about the poor, um, and he tweeted about that, yesterday i think i saw you retweet it um of course he's not it, dominic cummings isn't going to care about that, how yeah. how it looks to the public because and as you said kind of in the introduction this is someone who wants to be that anti-establishment figure um and that anti-politician figure which when you just look at this story yeah when you look right, at this yeah, story it's elite. just ridiculous we've got a man who drove 260 miles to stay in a private cottage on his family's estate in Durham, of which it has recently now started to be investigated that the cottage might not have council tax or planning permission. It's just a bizarre story. And it's like, these are the men of the people. And it's like, no, I just just don't get it. Not really. And it's translated into the polls. I mean, the Tory lead before this was in the double digits. It was quite strong. We were looking at probably a, a landslide around a hundred majority and now I'm not saying Labour are going to take the lead anytime soon but the Tory leader sunk to single digits Boris Johnson's 
leadership ratings have dipped. The government's approval in overall has dipped. And you just think that if he got rid of coming sooner, this could have been avoided. It's just bizarre how this is going to continue. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's a good point to leave Dominic Cummings on. I think going forward, you would hope that the government special advisors would again kind of recede into the shadows. But Dominic Cummings has now really made a name for himself, which is just bizarre because mo- most people, um, most voters, of course, we are... Um, overly interested in politics and the people listening to this podcast the the three of them that will be listening um are overly interested in politics <laughs> and of course most people wouldn't have heard of dominic cummings wouldn't know what dominic cummings looks like and wouldn't care what dominic cummings had to say about anything that now like the whole country is aware and there were people who we went to school with who clearly had no interest in politics who were like snapchatting them watching dominic cummings's press conference and it's it it truly is i mean we're, mm. we're through the looking glass at this point and it'll be interesting to see going forwards what dominic cummings plans are for the future because i think he's kind of set himself up for life <laughs> could you imagine a, a a talk show on lbc yeah. I, I think stranger things have happened um so yeah i, I think that's just something bizarre to look out for mm. anyway After Labour's miserable performance in the 2019 general election, Jeremy Corbyn was forced to depart as leader of the opposition. Finally, as some people would say. Um, Sakir Starmer, formerly Shadow Brexit Secretary, um, beat Rebecca Long-Bailey and Lisa Nandy to win the Labour leadership election. Since then, Starmer has risen in the polls and now enjoys a higher personal approval rating than Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. Um... A simple question, Zach. What have you made of Starmer's Labour Party thus far? It's, well, it's the the party of the opposition. And it sounds um, rather a dictionary definition, but you've seen how Starmer has completely changed the party in terms of its messaging. I think under Corbyn, there was a lack of leadership, but also a lack of image. And one thing that Starmer has been doing, I think for the last couple of weeks now, is doing this kind of um, video calls with people in areas where Labour done so miserably. I think yesterday he was in, he was doing a video in Nottinghamshire and they asked him, why do you think Labour lost so badly? And he said, well, rightly or wrongly, the leadership did come up. And I think how he's responded to the virus, how he's actually responded in his party, he's on the right tracks. Do I think he's a Prime Minister in waiting? Yes. Do I think he can be Prime Minister? I think we'll have to see more of Starmer, I think, because every poll I see of the favourability ratings, a large wedge of people, it's been going down, but it's still, I think, in the high 20s to 30s, are in the don't know. So I think with Starmer, we can have some preliminary comments, but to, and I think that's all we can do, because we've not really seen Labour beyond coronavirus yeah I, I think that's interesting i think the thing the thing with sit um keir starmer and i find this quite funny as well is that um the character in bridget jones mark darcy is allegedly kind of based on starmer which i find really funny um be, beyond that point which is completely irrelevant <laughs> what i quite like about labor is 
under Jeremy Corbyn, who of course had his weaknesses and had his strengths, um, Labour were very kind of vocal about absolutely everything. It was like, and again, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I don't think it's mm. good politics. I think from a moral normative perspective, I don't think it was would have been wrong that Jeremy Corbyn's Labour would have been demanding the resignation of, of Dominic Cummings. I don't think that would have been the wrong thing to do. But in terms of politically, the way that Starmer was willing just to know that, mm. okay, Dominic Cummings is going to absolutely dominate the news cycle, nothing that Dominic Cummings or the government said made the situation look any better. So what would have been the point in having 30 seconds of Keir Starmer saying Cummings should go kind of impact the government, uh, impact yeah. popular opinion? So I think in, in terms of strategy, I think Labour have looked a little bit better under Starmer than under um, Jeremy Corbyn. In terms of his cabinet, and I've written down some of the positions that he's given out. So deputy leader is Angela Rayner. Um, of course, these are all shadow positions, but I'm just going to say that the, the kind of brief title. So you've got Chancellor Annalise Dodds, Foreign Secretary Lisa Nandy, Home Secretary Nick Thomas-Simmons, Justice Secretary David Lammy, Defence Secretary John Healy, Business is Ed Miliband, you've got Emily Thornbury in Trade, Work and Pensions is Jonathan Reynolds, and Health is Jonathan Ashworth. Kind of that's that's the the core team that Starmer has kind of built around him. What what do you think of the lineup? It's it seems to matter of someone who got a landslide victory in the leadership. I think he's been man- he's managed to extinguish the Corbynites from the key positions. I mean, Rebecca Long Bailey, I think, is in there for party unity, and she's got a decent cabinet position. I think as shadow education. But you look at, for example, Diane Abbott was shadow home, very very much a Corbynite, much to the left of the party. There's people in the left of the party that are basically left. They're not left as in that he's been booted out of the shadow cabinet. And he's done that on his mandate of the leadership. And it's a, definitely a shadow cabinet that's veered away from the far left to the soft left. Because we've got to remember that Keir Starmer is no massive centrist or centre-right. He's, he's definitely had some left-wing policies and left-wing beliefs. So he's kind of made Labour from dark red to, I think, a lighter red, a red that I think people can resonate with, whereas with Corbyn's shadow cabinet, I think, much to his merits, John McDonnell, for example, shadow chancellor, quite a controversial figure, if you look at what he's been saying uh, and his history with Corbyn, whereas with Annalise Dodds, um, in a good way, not really a memorable character, not someone who we can say oh well in 1984 you said this about the IRA or you said this about the Tories and I think Starmer's tried to make the shadow cabinet quite plain but in a good way as in that there's nothing to attack them on at face yeah definitely I think if the important I mean. thing with politics is that you just don't want to be controversial so for instance an issue that plagued um Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonald the whole time they were they were Labour's top team, we should always have this accusation that they supported terrorists and the IRA and all this kind of things. And whether those those comments were baseless or not, or whether they had a grain of truth to them, or whether they were just true, um, the, the classic example was 
Jeremy Corbyn being present but not supporting or however he phrased it of, of the vigil. Um, it's just good to have a shadow cabinet that is not going mm. to draw attention to themselves because then you just have the opportunity to say, well, yeah, this is the Labour position. Um, I'm going to put this to you as well, Zach. Um, shadow Business Secretary, Ed Miliband, your thoughts. Oh, great. Uh, I mean, I like Miliband. I think he's a great, um, great politician. Probably not the best leader to have had, but he's definitely a, a worthwhile voice, I think, in the Labour Party. And you've seen that in the dispatch box, in, in his contributions in the House of Commons. He's definitely an asset for the Labour Party because it, it kind of encapsulates where the Labour Party is now. They're not massively left-wing. They're not massively in the centre. They're still in this, what I call, the soft left. I think Miliband is a, is, a, is definitely a good politician. And I think to have him in that cabinet, a former leader as well, he, he can kind of navigate Starmer through some sorts of um, some strategies to say, well, when I was leader in the 2015 election, you know, people seem to look at my past and look at, for example, my way of eating a bacon sandwich. So kind of, he will be that kind of voice of wisdom. And it's it quite a... Uh, just tells you that 2020 through the looking glass was saying Ed Miliband will be a voice of wisdom to Keir Starmer. But it's that kind of that experience as leader will be invaluable, I think, to Starmer. I think Ed Miliband's a really interesting appointment. Um, and there was a interview on James O'Brien's podcast, Full Disclosure, which was before lockdown happened because I remember watching it after getting my hair cut and then going to the pub to write an essay and watch football. Um, I had a very productive day, clearly. Um, <laughs> Which was really interesting. He talked about kind of one of the questions that James O'Brien put to Ed Miliband was, um, you're still quite a relatively young kind of man in terms of life as a politician. Um, and you've already peaked. You've already held, held rather the best job you're ever going to hold. Um, obviously, acknowledging that he didn't win the election. Um, how do you feel about that? And he was quite kind of laid back about the fact that he in many respects, had reached his peak. He was never going to be leader of, the, leader of the Labour Party again. But I think he was quite optimistic that at some point he would return to a prominent role. And it will be interesting to see what Ed Miliband does kind of with the position that he's been given. Um, a question for you, and we were talking about this, I think, yesterday um, privately. Why do you think after the coronavirus, where do you think the Labour Party will go? What do you think some of their key policies will look like? Yeah. Um, again, I want to talk about uh, Starmer yesterday when he was asked, why do you think you lost? Obviously, he brought up the leadership. He brought up the Brexit position, which admittedly he was the architect of. But he also said quite something quite interesting. He said the manifesto itself, we had too many policies. People did not trust us. He said there's a reason we've lost four elections in a row. And it goes beyond Jeremy Corbyn. It goes beyond Brexit. It goes beyond our manifesto pledges. But it's linked with them. He said that people don't trust us. And what I'm, in a way, is a bit of a concern as well as a, a comment is that Starmer's Labour, I think, will take a new Labour kind of pivot in terms of their policies being quite vague. Because um, we've heard, we've not really heard a now, uh, now to the mast Keir Starmer policy yet, apart from Brexit's done, that's it, we're not talking about it anymore. And it, it'd be interesting to see what they come up with because 
the manifesto itself was quite a decent manifesto. I mean, free broadband. It's tapped into the policy of the virus at the moment that kids have not been able to go to school, might not have an internet connection at all. That would have helped them. I think the government brought in something to help that. So the, the arguments and the policies are there. But if Starmer's going to chuck them, it's going to be interesting to see what he replaces them with. Because the membership seems to have really liked the manifesto. Most of the party liked the manifesto. It'd be interesting how he changes it. And as well, um, oh, it's got to be on me now. It'll come back to me. But yeah, in, in terms of, I don't really know what Keir Starmer's going to stand for yet. I think that's why he's not getting sky high ratings. I mean, I know there's a few people in the Twitter bubble that say that Star, any other leader apart from Cole should be 20 points clear. You know, it's that kind of issue. If we don't know too much about Starm yet, so how can we translate that into any sort of points lead at the moment? But yeah, overall, I think Starm as a Labour are going to be interesting to see what they chuck from that manifesto and what the new arguments are going to be because come the next election, we'd have had 14 years of a Tory government. The Tories would have won four elections and he can't go too mad on the manifesto by chucking everything because I think the message the Labour Party has to do is just give change a chance and he's already said we're going to build a better society it'd be interesting how he negotiates change building a better society and the political outlook in 2024 with um with the Labour Party and kind of going into future elections and how they're going to build the narrative around the policies. I think something that they have to be really careful of is, and I, I think they're probably savvy enough to know this, is that the policies at the last election weren't that unpopular. Many of them weren't unpopular. Many of them were, in fact, the opposite. They were quite popular. You had a situation where the policies aren't that bad, but as, as Keir Starmer said, and as you just pointed out, people didn't believe them because... It was very, very easy to portray the Labour position in 2019 as follows. We are going to change the world. Everything we want to do, we're going to pay for it. It's going to be absolutely fine. Money we don't have to worry about, we'll we'll loan some more. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, when you put that position through the lens of a right of centre newspaper or Twitter or my parents watching BBC Mm -hmm. News, the response you get is, oh, no, we're going to be taken over by a load of communists. Yeah, that, that was how mm. sort of a lot of the public Jeremy Corbyn came across. Again, I don't, I don't think that's, that, that's kind of inaccurate, an accurate reflection of how reality actually was. Um, but an issue they have, they have Labour is that we've had 14 years, or by the time the next election is, we would have had 14 years of conservative governments um, and people have grown used to the austerity narrative. So people are used to the idea that government finances work in the same way as household finances. So people think, oh, well, the government's going to run out of money, which technically is true. But there are other ways you can go about solving an issue. If you're a government, you could mm. issue more bonds, etc., etc. So something that the government needs to be careful of, or rather the Labour Party needs to be careful of is they shouldn't abandon everything that they previously stood for because focus groups have shown that people like the policies anyway. But what they need to do is they need to construct a third way, um, if you will, of 
you need kind of the new Labour messaging on somewhere between things can only yeah get so you, you need that kind of very middle ground almost centrist messaging so that people believe what you're saying but also you still need the policies to mm. be ambitious because people like the policies um and going forward i think that'll be interesting a quote that i've written down at the bottom at the bottom of my notes which i think is quite interesting and this came out in pmqs was that boris johnson is proud of the government's response to the coronavirus um, and that came yes. in PMQs. What did you make of the Starmer versus Johnson battle? You can tell there's been a change of leadership when you look at PMQs because Keir Starmer is, I hate using the word, is forensic. And this is what we talk about proper opposition is happening is that Keir Starmer won't let something go like probably Jeremy Corbyn would have. Because Jeremy Corbyn's me uh, method in PMQs was to shout down your opponent, to throw everything at it, throw that the world is so bad because of the Tories. Whereas Keir Starmer takes a more delicate approach. He goes, OK, you're saying this, but here's the evidence. What is actually backing that up? And you can tell he's rattling Boris Johnson. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, Boris Johnson slapped the dispatch box and he said well we are the infection rate is coming down and you're thinking Starmer's kind of got under his skin because the detail the devil is in the detail he's saying well how can you be proud of 60,000 people like, according to the financial times in excess deaths 60,000 dead but that's not a proud record and I'm not gonna have a negative tone because that's the reality of the situation I think Johnson needs people back in parliament because he he likes a crowd Whereas for Starmer, it's like a courtroom as former director of public prosecutions. He likes that. He likes the courtroom setting. He likes the silence because it, anything he says to Johnson is eyeline to eyeline, no one drowning out the noise, and it's getting to Johnson. So at the moment, I think there's been, I'd like to say four, four PMQs between Starmer and Johnson. I think everyone's got it down as 4 nil to Starmer which at the start of someone's opposition is only positive. What about you, Luke? What do you think of Star and the Starmer and Johnson I, era? I really like PMQ, so I'm, when, I, when I was at sixth form, I used to have um, a free period when PMQs was on a Wednesday. Um, so if I didn't have any kind of call to work to or homework to do, I'd, I'd just take the hour and watch PMQs. And at that time, it would have been Theresa May versus Jeremy Corbyn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the worst. Which <laughs> was always a bit bizarre. Um, but Keir Starmer versus Boris Johnson is a really interesting matchup. And again, I'm not I'm not going to use the word forensic because it's ridiculously overused simply because the man is a lawyer. Um, you've got someone who is very, very precise and seems very much across the details in, in Keir Starmer versus Boris Johnson, who looks like he's kind of at, I don't know, Cambridge Debating Society or whatever it might be. Um, so it's mm. like the showman versus the kind of guy with a briefcase. And it's been so interesting to listen. Yeah. So I listened to this week's PMQs on the radio. Um, so I, I didn't I didn't see Boris Johnson slap the dispatch box. But you can tell he did it because the whole of the comments was like, ooh, and it was very kind of um, secondary school nonsense going on. But what I quite liked about the exchange was... Keir Starmer would put something to him 
And the question, I, I can't even, I can't remember what the question was, but Keir Starmer asked what I thought was quite a valid and fair mm. question. And then Boris Johnson just attacked him and said, no, you, you can't say this because basically um, you're attacking the government and you're attacking the people and their efforts. And it was just such a kind of ditch effort to kind of deflect against Starmer. And it, at that point, it felt like... I felt like Labour had already kind of won the debate. And again, I, I appreciate the irony in saying that Labour had won the debate. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was interesting. And I think going forwards, of course, and one thing I want to put to you as well, is if the strategy for members of parliament to return to Westminster was to help Boris Johnson in PMQs, um, how do you think that went for the Conservatives? Well, I think it's backfired. Um, well, I think we've already seen the policy of getting MPs back into Parliament fall flat on its behind. When uh, I think was it Jacob Rees-Mogg had to kind of concede that proxy voting is appropriate. It, Johnson needs to bait in crowds, but you saw, I think even with the opposition crowd, when uh, Boris Johnson slapped this back, you could hear the audible "ooh," that kind of it, it will backfire because I think no matter how much noise you have to drown out. Here, Starmer. The facts are there, and Starmer's only going to repeat them on radio stations. He's only going to repeat them on his Twitter page. Like Johnson can't just think, "Oh, I'm going to bluster my way through it. I'm going to have people behind me cheering and jeering." Here, Starmer, because it it works with Jeremy Corbyn because Jeremy Corbyn played up to it. It won't work with Keir Starmer because you know the, the more louder Boris Johnson gets, the more calmer Keir Starmer gets. It's that kind of I've now got you. Ex- where I want you, I'll let you, you know, babble off whatever you want to do. And then I'll hit you back with, for example, I think it's the other week when Keir Starmer said, well, I'm not making the international comparisons, you are. Kind of, and it represents Labour's strategy in general that they're just going to sit back, let the Conservatives dig a hole and then give them another shovel. I think PMQs will be really, really interesting to watch as we go forward. And I've kind of, I, th- I think we've kind of got to the end of the show, um, unless there's anything you want to add. But one thing I did want to kind of point people to the direction was, is go on social media, go on Twitter um, and look at hard Brexit hard man, um, as he likes to be known, Steve Baker, Barker, whatever his name is, um, his Twitter account, because there's a, there's a video of him doing what is a vlog for Winchester as as MPs are queuing up throughout kind of Westminster Hall and in in the gardens outside to vote, and he's saying this is so silly, it makes no sense. What are we doing? And he gets to the front of the queue and he votes to keep or votes to suspend the virtual parliament. And I think that really summed up just the brazenness of what's going on at the moment because you had Steve Barker openly admit that no, going going back to parliament is a bit of a silly idea, and then moments later voting to bring back parliament it was just very very odd i i, I thought that was something yeah. that kind of brought up the situation quite nicely um have you got anything else kind of to say about sakia starmer labor party anything like that just to round off the show probably just to round off that um we said it at the beginning the more we know about some the more we'll see whether or not he's an electable leader and whether he's a capable leader but so far so good to round off the show, do you have any kind of final comments or anything you want to promote? Uh, 
Yes. Uh, I think I'll put the, I'll tweet the link later, but there's a lot of Black Lives Matter uh, petitions for uh, across not just the US, but the UK. That I'd like to just promote that. I'll be tweeting it a bit later and that I hope people can sign them. And also I think there'll be a link to the YouTube video. So where you don't have to donate directly, but by watching the video with loads of ads, you're donating to many bail funds. As Zach just said, it's so important that we come together to support the fight against racial injustice around the world. I'll put links to all of the petitions and donation pages that Zach just mentioned in the episode's description that will be really easy to find underneath this episode. As we said at the outset, Midfield Politics is going to be a passion project for us. We want to build a website that's dedicated to US and UK politics, and we really look forward to providing more coverage throughout the summer. This has been episode one of the MP Pod. Until next time, stay well, stay safe, and keep voting.